Interview number 120, Diane Wolkstein, connecting with the audience, other cultures, and ourselves. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling, and this is Brother Wolf, and I am so pleased, I am so grateful that you have come here today, that you have made the time, that you have found your way through that miracle that is the World Wide Web, that you have taken the moment to put that CD in or listen to that iPod, that you are taking the time to examine the thing that that we love oh so well, which is the art of storytelling. And the art of storytelling in every aspect, in every facet that we can find, that we can examine. Here, we shine it up. We shine it up and we find that gleam, that light. We hold it up and we look into the light and we see a new side of how we can use the art of storytelling. So I know you're doing some important stuff right now, but maybe you could put some of those things aside because I know that my guest has been doing storytelling a long time. And I know that she's been doing it a long time, and I know that she's really committed to it, because when I was four years old, in 1974, she came into my preschool and told stories. And being that my little sister later, a few years later, heard my stories that I insisted on telling her every night for several years, I am tempted to think that Diane Wolkstein is the reason that I'm a storyteller today. Let me tell you a little bit more about Diane. Diane enters and speaks from the heart of each story she tells. Her storytelling career began while studying pantomime in Paris, where she also told Bible stories to children. Diane believes that stories can guide us to where our heart wants to lead us. Throughout her 40 years as a storyteller, she's been known for her meticulous research as well as her great range as a storyteller. A teacher of storytelling and mythology, Diane is also the author of 23 books, including The Magic Orange Tree and other Haitian folk tales, ancient Iraqi epic of Inanna. Her latest DVD is A Storyteller's Story. On June 23, 2007, Mayor Bloomberg awarded Diane the proclamation of Diane Wolkstein Celebrate Story Day for her 40 years of service to the city of New York. For more information on her, you can find that out at www.dianewolkstein.com. That's www.dianewolkstein.com. Thank you so much, Diane, for coming on the show. Thank you, Eric. I'm glad to speak to you. As you mentioned, I have been telling stories for many, many years. I guess what's changed in telling stories for many, many years is I'm not afraid anymore to tell stories. I used to be really scared. And that's what I say to beginning storytellers. Well, that's kind of how it is. You're scared because you have an idea of how good you want it to be, and you aren't there yet. So you're scared because there's that distance between you and where you want to go. I mean, some people are just naturally 
storytellers. I wasn't ever really naturally a storyteller. I think I was naturally dramatic. I guess I was trying to express things that were inside of me and they came out in a dramatic way. But the idea of being scared is because I had an idea of how good I wanted it to be and how much I wanted people to enjoy it. And when you talk about when you were four years old, I remember very well um, Morningside Daycare. Uh, it was in the park, and at that time they had a really good parks program. It was under Lindsay, and I began my storytelling, telling stories for the parks department. I think I was the first person who was hired as a full-time storyteller for a city. I was hired in 1967, and for for many years I worked for the parks, and I told stories in the summer for the parks and in the schools. As part of the parks program, I would go into schools as well as hospitals and senior citizen homes. And it was really trial by fire, um, going taking the subway, going all over Manhattan, Bedford-Stuyvesant, Harlem, Queens. I went to every park in the city and told all ages, all kinds of people, and just learned from doing it. There weren't any teachers then. There weren't any other storytellers that I knew of when I first began. It was the story that I love and my desire to share it. And it's still the same thing. The only difference is I'm not afraid anymore. Do you have a story you can share with us? Um, the story I'd like to tell is from, well, it's both from The Magic Orange Tree and other Haitian folk tales, and it's from my new CD, The Magic Orange Tree. It's a story I've been telling since the 70s. It's called I'm to Pingy, She's to Pingy, We're to Pingy Too. And um, I heard this story in Haiti. The way storytelling takes place in Haiti is if you are a storyteller and you have a story to tell, you say creak, meaning I have a story to tell, and the person listening will say crack, meaning, okay, I want to hear you tell. If they don't say crack, then that storyteller can't tell because the idea of storytelling in Haiti is it's a mutual reciprocal relationship. And that's really what I think about stories. I think that's the root of stories for me, is that it's a mutual, reciprocal relationship. And in the best of storytelling, the storyteller receives as much as the storyteller gives, and the audience receives as much as they give. The more the audience gives, the more the storyteller gives. The more the storyteller gives, the more the audience gives. And in Haiti, sometimes it was just electric. You know, the story, the people were, you know, singing and dancing and clapping, and the storyteller became more and more and more animated. So it was a thrilling experience. It still is. And I, my sense is that's why most of us tell stories. It certainly is why I do, is to arouse within the storyteller and within the story listeners our imagination and our care for the other. So it's, it's both, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's mutual, and then there's a third entity which arises, which is the care, the compassion for the third. So that's why when I talk about stories, so much of it does come from my 
gratitude to the Haitian people because they embody this tradition with the Creek Crack. Many other storytelling traditions have something like it. When we begin and we say, once upon a time, you know, people kind of breathe and they slowly, ah, they relax and you watch that and you take that in. But that's not the same as someone saying crack, meaning I will participate. And that deep commitment to participate, I think, is part of, in some way, part of the black culture, part of the Creole culture, part of community relationship, which is what I care about in storytelling is creating relationship between and among people. This is a large preamble before telling the story of I'm Topingi, she's Topingi, we're Topingi too. But that's what the story is actually about. So another thing about telling stories is the context. I tell stories from many different cultures. Unless I give a feel of the culture, you don't have as much sense of the roots of where the the flow is of of, of the connection of of what is taking place so let me tell this story and then I'll talk about some of the other cultures but I'm not speaking just as if I've forgotten what the story is. I know what the story is that I'm about to tell, but I feel that I have to give, not that I have to, I have to, and I want to give honor to the people who gave me the story. And in the book, The Magic Orange Tree, before each of the stories, the story tell, I tell who told the story, who was sitting there and what happened. And I think that has not really wasn't really done as a tra- tradition in storytelling books before I did this, which came out in 1978, and now it's much more of a tradition of giving respect to the person that it com- comes from because stories are a part of a culture, and even if we dream it, you know, it's our parents gave birth to us. Whatever it is, we imagine it. We are a part of a culture, and we're handing it over with the idea that. It will be of an inspiration to others who come after us. So, in this story, there's a chant and a refrain, which I'll teach you, Eric, and I hope people who will be listening, who are listening, uh, will also join from wherever they're sitting, standing, or whatever they're doing. So, the words are, I'm Topingi. I'm Topingi. She's Topingi. She's Topingi. We're Topingi too. We're Topingi too. I'm Topingi. I'm Topingi. She's Topingi. She's Topingi. We're Topingi too. We're Topingi too. I'm Topingi. He's Topingi. We're Topingi too. I'm Topingi. She's Topingi. We're Topingi too. I'm Topingi. He's Topingi. We're Topingi too. I'm Topingi. He's Topingi. We're Topingi too. And then I'm Topingi. She's Topingi. We're Topingi too. I'm Topingi. She's Topingi. We're Topingi too. Great. Okay. So I think we're ready to start. You're doing very well. Creek. There was a girl whose name was Topingi. Now, she lived with her stepmother who was, in this case, I have to say, she was mean. Not all stepmothers are mean, but she was. One day, she was cooking sweets, which she was about to sell, and the firewood was all gone. So she had to go into the forest to get more firewood because Topingi was in school and she couldn't call her to go. And she walked into the forest and couldn't find any firewood. So she walked in a little further and a little further and a little further. And still she looked here, she looked there, she couldn't find any firewood. 
Finally, oh, she came to this place. There was firewood everywhere, and she made a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger pile of firewood. The firewood was even taller than she was. This pile, and she stood there and she looked at this big pile of firewood, and she just said, "Here I am. Here's the firewood, and who's going to help me carry it home?" I will. And out from a tree, stepped an old man. Oh, he said. If I help you carry this home, what will you give me? Oh, she said. Well, I don't have anything here, but help me carry it home, and I'll give you something. All right. So, with one hand, he lifted up the firewood, carried it, and put it down on her steps. Now, what are you going to give to me? Well, I don't have much," she said. "But、uh, I, I have a stepdaughter named Tapingi. Tomorrow I'll send her to the well. Well, she'll be wearing a red dress. Call her by her name, Tapingi, and take her. All right. Tapingi was inside the house. Uh oh. What was she going to do? She heard what her stepmother said. She thought she could run away, but then how would she eat? How would she live? What could she do? She went to her best friend. She said to her best friend. Tomorrow, would you wear red when you go to the well to get water? Please, it would help me. Sure, said her friend. So she asked another friend and another friend, and all her friends said, "Sure, sure." They all agreed. They understood what she needed, and they all agreed to help her. The next day, Tapingi went to the well to get water. She was wearing red. All the children who came to the well were wearing red. The old man looked around. Everybody was wearing red. He said, "Which one of you is Tapingi?" They said, "I'm Tapingi. She's Tapingi too. I'm Tapingi. She's Tapingi. We're Tapingi too. I'm Tapingi. We're Tapingi too. I'm Tapingi. We're Tapingi too." Oh, he said. Which one of you is Tapingi? I'm Tapingi. We're Tapingi too. The old man couldn't find who was Tapingi. He went to the old woman. And he said, "You tricked me. Everyone was wearing red. Well, tomorrow she'll be wearing black. Just call her by her name, Tapingi, and take her." Tapingi heard this. She went to her friend and said, "Tomorrow, would you wear?" Black. Her friend agreed. She asked another friend. Another friend. They all agreed. They all agreed to wear black. The old man went to the well. Every child was wearing black. He said, "Which one of you is Tapingi?" They said, "I'm Tapingi. She's Tapingi. 
We're to pinky too. I'm to pinky. She's to pinky. We're to pinky too. I'm to pinky. She's to pinky. We're to pinky. He's to pinky. She's to pinky. We're to pinky too. Which one of you is to pinky? I'm. We're. She. We're. He went to the stepmother. He said, "You tricked me twice. If you trick me a third time, I'm taking you." The stepmother said, "She only has two dresses. Tomorrow she'll be wearing her red dress. Call her by her name, Tapingi, and take her." Oh, Tapingi was a little nervous to ask her friends a third time to help, but they were her friends, so she said, "Tomorrow, please, would you wear red?" Thanks. Would you wear red when you go to the well? Thanks. Would you? Thanks. They all agreed again. The old man came to the well. Everyone was dressed in red. He said, "Which one of you is the pinky?" They said, "I'm the pinky. We're the pinky. She's the pinky too. I'm the pinky. He's the pinky. We're the pinky. She's the pinky. We're the pinky. I'm the pinky. She's the pinky. We're the pinky. I'm the pinky. She's the pinky. We're the pinky." Oh. Oh. He went to the stepmother, and he took her away. As for Tabingi, she stayed in her father's house, and very often visited her friends, who took good care of Tabingi. Yay! I love that story because if you look at the history of Haiti as a culture coming in, out of a slave-based culture and the history of, in terms of women's rights under slavery, and it's, it's this amazing cultural narrative going on right there in terms of how you deal with the reality of being unable to control your own body. But there are a couple things going on there that you did that the audience can't see that I want to describe. They were pretty amazing. The third time you asked. Um, are you Tapingi? You were. It felt like you were going right up to me and saying that to me. It felt like I could see a whole group of kids in front of you, and you're going to one kid. Are you? And they would. And they would say, "Yes, I'm Tapingi." And also, when you were doing the the chant, you were really including me, and it felt like you were really bridging. One of the issues that happens in American theater and American storytelling, as a as an outgrowth of that of the audience training, is that audiences are very distant from the stories. And I really see in that story these issues you're talking about in terms of building relationship in the audience with the audience with a story. Thank you for、um, letting the audience know about that, and that is very accurate. More and more, when I tell stories, I will stop a story and then say to the audience, "What should she do?" Before I dis- before she does go to her friends, I actually ask, "Well, what should she do?" Now that's not in the, the magic orange tree. Book when you read the stories or when you listen to the CD, I wrote down the story as I was told the story. It exists in that form. I did my job as a collector. Now I'm working as a storyteller, inspirational person to examine the story with the audience and to dwell in it and to raise the questions as if we are truly in that moment, which is what should she do, and how many times can you ask for help? It's a big question. I've told that story in Harlem, and it's been really, really touching to have the children mull over 
how many times can you ask a friend? And then they argue about it. They really do argue. If the person is a friend, yes, they can. They can ask that many times because that's what it means to be a friend. So we talk about all these issues come up as the story moves. And then sometimes we'll come to an impasse and I'll simply say, well, let's see what she did. Let's go back to the story and see what she did. And then everyone's like, okay, you know, like they really want to get it. They've argued about it. They're not sure. You know, let's see what does happen. And that's very exciting in that kind of a way to to grapple with the issues in a story. One of these stories, the title story is called The Magic Orange Tree. And in this particular story, a stepmother, again, forces the girl to take her to the tree, which gives her oranges. And the oranges are so tasty, the stepmother asks her to climb the tree and bring her the oranges then she says, let me do it, the stepmother says. And I turn to the audience and I ask them, should the girl give the stepmother a chance to climb her tree, the, the girl's tree? And the answers vary every single time you know, as to whether people trust or they don't trust. And it, always there's an argument about giving a person one more chance. So these issues which belong to children two three four years old belong to us whatever age they are about trusting people having faith in people wanting to help people knowing when to trust when not to trust and when you tell it as a uh, which I really always enjoy is many ages then you get a whole the whole culture the whole group of people examining and looking at these issues and what I've found interesting over the years is that you have the same percentage usually among children as you do among adults as to whether or not to trust it doesn't that kind of thing doesn't change that much over years hey everybody this is michael reno harrell and you're listening to the art of storytelling with brother wolf How has the attention span of children changed over the past 30 years? My experience has been that it's the same. My experience is that children are as attentive now as they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. When you tell them an exciting story, a story that matters to you, they listen. I, I don't have a problem. I mean, there were people who acted out, you know, 20 years ago, the kids who act out, you know, to this day. So I, I don't see that there's a difference. There's a difference in response of children. I think children who um, sometimes uh, sometimes children are more responsive who who are used to an oral culture than children who are used to a more literary culture. They know that you respond more. They give out more. But I don't see that they're less attentive. I wouldn't say I have found that to be true. How long, in your experience, does it take to train an audience to respond more, to take part in the oral tradition, as you're describing? Well, one of the things which I was doing when I was introducing the story from Haiti and made such a long preamble is letting the audience know who I am so that we have a sense that we're going on a journey together. 
and that in this journey I'm expecting their participation. So I think you have to build up their expectations of what you expect from them. You have to talk about it a little bit. You have to give examples. And this whole idea of, I'm ex- you know, the more you give, the more I give, that's part of this understanding. So the reason why a story such as Topingi is important to me, which is what the stories that I tell are about, I tell stories which are about courage and compassion. She has to be very courageous, really. Um, running away would not be terribly courageous. Finding a way of dealing with life's difficulties is courageous. Asking for help is courageous. And then having the answer come from the compassion of others is is the only solution that we have in this world. I guess I've become more and more political as the years have gone on, but I've always been telling the same kinds of stories, which is that this is one planet and we're here to help each other. As somebody who's told stories from other cultures, in particular, you have this connection with the Haitian culture. What responsibility do you see that storytellers have as as Americans, as people who don't come from these cultures? What responsibility do we have when telling and also in terms of our debt to those cultures? Well, in my case, um, it's the Haitian people who have thanked me because uh, it is the Haitian ambassador who said that I was the person who has made Haitian culture known throughout the world because of this book, The Magic Orange Tree. So being American or another culture from the culture you're telling stories from can actually be a gift to that culture if your idea is respect, understanding, learning. If you learn and give as much information as you can, you can further that culture. I've been working with the Chinese culture on another um, a specific long story, an epic called Journey to the West. So in order to work on this story, I had to go to the land, to the Silk Route, to travel there. I've been learning Mandarin. I learned Creole to do the Haitian stories. I've spoken with many Taoist and Buddhist teachers because the story is based on that culture. Haitian stories are based a lot on the voodoo culture, so that was a big part in learning the um, Haitian stories. So there's an enormous amount of research which draws me. I'm not sure it draws every storyteller, but the more you deeply know about the roots of the story, the more you can offer in your presentation of the story back to the people whose culture comes from as well as to other people to act as a bridge and to... It's like bringing the root of what the story is and then understanding that it has many different costumes. But there's a root essence about what it's about and what its meaning is. And in this story, too, it really is about care for one another. It, this is a very long story. It's 2,000 pages, and I tell it in about two hours. And the story is a journey which is made from China to India to bring back the Buddhist scriptures. It's based on an actual journey which took place. You can read about it on the website monkeykingepic.com. And in this actual journey that the priest made, who uh, journeyed from China to India, he brought back the Buddhist scriptures, and that's how Buddhism today has thrived, because he brought back these scriptures. 
But when he goes on this journey, he goes with a crazy, wild, impetuous, super powerful monkey whose biggest desire is himself and power. And what he wants is to be acknowledged and appreciated and honored. And his ego and his arrogance have heavenly um, uh, dimensions. Whereas the priest, all he wants is to help the people by bringing back the scriptures. So here you have this journey that these two characters are taking and one wants to give and the other wants to receive and they struggle through the whole journey. And of course, these two aspects are within within each of us, you know, really wanting to help others and also wanting things for ourselves. So how the journey takes place and how there's a reconciliation between the two is what what it is about and what I find very poignant and meaningful and has attracted me so that I want to learn more about the culture so I can tell the story in its authentic spirit. Let's go back a second here. Let's go back a second here. You just said that you studied Creole and Chinese Mandarin or Mandarin, Mandarin to, to better tell these stories. Do you mean you actually learning the language? Not just learning a few phrases, but you're actually studying the language in order to better understand the culture. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I can I, I can follow a story in Creole. I can't. I don't know Mandarin very well, but I've been reading it. I've read the Mandarin in the story that I told, so that I know I know about 300 words of Mandarin. I know most of the words that I use. I are within the story itself. So I'm interested in the structure of how it works. I'm interested in the concepts, those kinds of things. I'm not fluent at all. But this is an interesting standard to set for playing with the stories of other cultures. And, and I'm not talking about people who just read a story out of a book or learn a story from a book and tell it the way it is, but actually changing the structure of stories or changing... Um, playing with, like with this story, the, with the, I mean, the Monkey King is a very famous epic, but you've taken a very original and different tact on it. And it feels to me like you really have a respectfully gone in and said, what is this culture about and how do I understand it? That's true. And I, I feel honored to have the opportunity to learn. So I want to learn from the Taoist masters. I wanted to, I wanted to learn from the people who are performing it. Um, there's a long tradition of people who perform just this epic. They've been performing it for five generations, so I've been studying with one of those people in Taiwan. Um, that's been very crucial for me. So when I start the story, he's with me. I, I'm, on, I'm not telling it only myself. And I also tell Hasidic stories, and um, you know, my rabbi Shlomo Karlbach is with me when I tell his stories, so... I I am very traditional in many ways. Although I tell it in my own way, I'm feeling and carrying a deep tradition when I'm giving over the stories. How do you apply these ideas of relationship with the audience and storytelling? How do you apply these ideas to these other stories? Well, I try to find within the story moments when the audience can enter. So I, I gave you the example in the Haitian stories. I'll stop the story and ask them, what should the character do? What I've done in Journey to the West is to break it into episodes. So for each episode, there's a sign, and I let the audience 
uh, all say the say the word together, which is oh, Monkey King finds the compliant rod, or Monkey King enters the underwater palace of the Dragon King, because the story encompasses the entire universe, and you're going from the you know the thirty third realm of heaven to the eighteenth a hall of darkness in the underworld, you have to place yourself in space. I find that method. But I'm also I'm still working on it. It's a work in progress and working on ways of finding a place for the audience to enter into the story because I think that is so important because it, it gives us the sense that we can change things. Entering the story means that you can you can change your story you have that opportunity. A story goes a certain way, but you can change it. And we really have to change some of the stories that we're living. You've been telling stories professionally for a long time. And I, I know that many people listening are just curious about how you've made this lifestyle of being a, a storyteller work. And if you have any tips or um, if any suggestions, as someone who's been able to do it consistently for over three decades... Four decades. Oh, my goodness. As someone who's been able to do professional storytelling for over four decades, what could you offer the community of storytellers who who may be telling something professionally or maybe telling professionally but having a hard time getting by? I think everyone's different. You know, I mean, I tell stories because it's my spiritual path. I don't know why people tell stories. I think everyone has a different reason why they're telling. So I, I find that as long as I'm on my spiritual path with the stories that I'm telling, I'm fine. So I think in the 70s, I was telling folk tales. That was important to me. In the 80s, I started to tell myths. And then in the 90s, I was telling more spiritual stories. Uh, The story of Ruth from the Bible was very, very important to me and still is. I mean, just to have that opportunity to tell such an extraordinary story, I felt very fortunate. I had this big desire, you know, when I I wrote a book called Treasures of the Heart, Holiday Stories That Reveal the Soul of Judaism. And in this book, I brought in Midrash, which is oral legends about the women in the biblical stories. So I really was hoping in with this book that it would reach both the Christian and the Jewish communities and I wanted to tell it very much in that kind of way. I never succeeded. I mean, some things you don't succeed in, some things you do. But that was a real wish of mine. But at least I have the privilege of telling that story. My path has become much more closer to Buddhism and I've been practicing Taoism for 20 years as well as well as Qigong. So the practice, my inner practice is, is manifest through my stories. It's it just how I have to live. I don't know how other people, each person has a different reason why they're telling stories, why they have to do it or don't have to do it. I have to do it. <laughs> so it's, it's um, I mean, I can give you little, I don't think I can give you those tips because they're not really part of what, a, what, a, what I'm doing. So your tips might be more of follow your heart and follow your bliss. I don't think it's follow your bliss because your spiritual practice is not your bliss. Your spiritual practice is extremely difficult. I think it's a realization of what your heart needs more than 
follow your bliss. I don't know. That sounds, seems like going on drugs to me. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think it's quite the opposite of drugs. I think you dream, but I think it's a lot of hard work, uh, a lot of reading, a lot of research. It's it's just a commitment. I mean, I, I was really brought up that I'm supposed to give an offering with my life. And I think most storytellers do feel that way, it's that maybe they're not clear as to exactly what the offering is. And the clearer you become as to what your offering is, when it's really clear, I think things fall on their path. You know, they, it just opens up for you. And if you keep talking about it, someone else will be interested, someone else will care. So I, I think it has to do with the clarity of what is important to share. I want to bring us for a last time back to this concept of being in relationship with the audience. If I was to take it out of the different cultural contexts and I was to look at the ideas you sort of presented, especially with the Haitian story, one thing that I'm hearing, and I also hear the Native American tradition, is there's a call and response from the teller asking permission to continue or proceed or at least to begin. Another thing I'm hearing is that the storyteller is actively including the audience in the story. They're not sailing off alone. The storyteller may choose to pause the story and ask the audience to participate in the next, what would happen next. Not that that would change the story itself, plot point, but it could. But it would include the audience in feeling like they had an investment in the story. And lastly, the storyteller can use music, in particular circular song, to invite the audience to become a part of the story. Did that kind of cover all the points? That was excellent. <laughs> you summarized it well. So what's exciting to me about this is that these ideas, and I think there's a danger in the United States, we have a tendency to say, oh, that's Haitian. or that's, And I think these ideas can be applied to whatever cultural background you come from or whatever cultural background you're really um, interested in exploring. But these ideas can be applied to, I mean, I've seen these ideas applied in hip-hop in particular, and... And I find them very exciting. And hip-hop is from the black culture. I mean, we do have to acknowledge that this is a warmth and a reciprocity in the black culture. And when we speak about Haiti, when you say, well, what is it that you want to give back to the culture? I mean, I, I've help, tried to help with benefits, and I still am trying to raise money for Haiti. Who's helping Haiti is the Haitians. Um, the non-Haitian communities haven't yet gotten together. I don't know what they're doing. Um, I know that they're, <laughs> you know, turning the circles and turning the circles. Uh, but meanwhile, you're back to creek crack, you know. You're back to asking for help. And people are helping one another. And that's what they did when it happened. And one of the things I find so atrocious is this endless thing. Even I got this thing today from CARE, C-A-R-E, saying that Haiti is the poorest culture, the, is the poorest country. They aren't the poorest country. They're the poorest country economically. They are not the poorest country. How do we? What does poor mean? They have the richest culture in the Caribbean, and our whole concept of what's poor, what's rich, is. Um, so defined by our concept of what is enough and what is true culture. That's deep. We could spend an hour just on that topic right there. What is true culture? I wanted to add one more thing that I was thinking about. It's not 
only that I, you know, read the books or that I go to the land, but in the doing the research, it's connecting to the people. There's a particular person, his name is Mr. Shun, who taught me the different moves for Monkey King. So as I said, when I begin the story, he's with me. Like, I see him. I, I can feel him in my body. So I'm carrying his spirit. And the same thing with the Haitian stories, you know. <laughs> they laugh when they tell stories, you know. They're smiling. I can see that smile. I can feel that kind of sunshine in them. So I think that's part of the cultural transmission or the bridges you're bringing the spirit of the people to other people it's almost like you have this body memory of your experience of the culture and you're carrying that with with you into the audience into the audience's experience of the story and i think that's why i don't have a problem about like children paying attention because what i have to share is so important they get they grasp it it's not like oh the minute i start they know this is something important because it is important uh, these people need to live, so they need to hear it. Hi, I'm Anne Glover, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. Okay, now do I go? Okay, Monkey, yeah, go ahead, your turn. Okay, hi. Um, no, wait a second. Um... Wait, can we start over? Because I forgot if I... No, Monkey, just say hi. This is Monkey. Hi. But, Anne, what? They don't know me. No, but th that's why you're introducing yourself. Hi, this is Monkey. No, I'm Monkey. I know. I'm just telling you what to say. Hi, I'm Monkey. And this is... You're listening to... And you're... But what if they're not listening anymore? They're listening, Monkey. Just talk to them. Um... Okay, you're listening to the art of storytelling, but Anne... And what, monkey? You say with Brother Wolf. Come on. Oh yeah. Um, but why is he called Brother Wolf? It's his name. Well, his name's Eric, but he's calling himself Brother Wolf. Why don't we just say with Eric Wolf? Well, you can say that, monkey. Okay. Hi. This is Monkey, and you're listening to Eric. No, but then they'll think I'm Eric. No, they won't, monkey. They really won't. Okay. Hi. This is Monkey. Um, and. You gotta wrap it up, Monk. Wrap what up? End. We're running out of time. Okay. Hi, this is Monkey, and um, um, you're listening to the Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. 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 Eric. Is that it? That's it, Monkey. Well done. Do you have an offer? I love to teach. I really enjoy it, so I'm very happy to come to anyone's community who wants to organize a storytelling workshop. I would be very glad to do that. And I give storytelling workshops in New York, usually in the month of October and November and December, one a month. Um, my website is my name, dianewokestein.com. I can spell it D-I-A-N-E. W-O-L-K-S-T-E-I-N dot com. And this link will be on the blog, artofstorytellingshow.com. Workshops is, is participatory. It's from that same place that I really enjoy living and functioning and sharing 
um, I would love to come to a workshop you want might want to organize or invite you who are listening to come to a workshop that I'm organizing. They're on my website. I also travel and I have a special website just for monkeykingepic.com. So I would love to invite you to join that and um, to participate in this monkeykingepic.com great journey. For my offer for the show, I'd like to remind the listener that I have a free e-course called Zen and the Art of Storytelling in Seven Simple Steps at www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash storytelling. And I know for many of my listeners who are regular listeners, they say, well, that's great, Eric, but uh, we've heard that a hundred times. We've even signed up for it. I want to remind you uh, that every once in a while I send out offers of workshops or other events that I organize. And if you're interested in learning more about storytelling by actually coming to where I live in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and doing a workshop with me, that that is a great opportunity. Sign up for that e-course and you'll get those alerts when they go out. In addition, I know there are many people who ask the question, well, Eric, I really love your show. I love listening to your show, but I, I don't really understand how I can be of help to you. And I just want to remind you that there are three ways you can help me in, in this show. The first way is that you can spread the word about the show. You can link to the show. You can tell people about the show. Um, you can recommend particular episodes to friends of yours. The second way that you can be of assistance if you wish is you can actually put a financial stake into the production of the show. Currently, I have a small group of people who give me 10 to $15 a month, depending on their means, to support the production of the show, and that's through the audience level of the International Storytelling School, and that's at www.thestorytellingschool.com. And thirdly, another way that you could be a great help to me is that after you listen to one of these shows that you enjoyed, like this one, you can go to the blog at artofstorytellingshow.com and you can leave a comment there about your thoughts and your feelings in response to what the artist has said. Because I, I don't like working in a vacuum, and sometimes with this show it does feel that way. I know that 2,000 people listen and are listening as I speak, but it's still feels like they are off in the ether and I'm here um, alone sitting here or with just my guest. And so I would like to offer to you, you know, um, comment on the blog. If you're not already a fan on the Facebook page, look it up, Art of Storytelling Show, or just Art of Storytelling in Facebook. Find the fan page and become a fan. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope this show has been beneficial to you. Now let's go back to Diane. Diane, I got one more question for you. And that is, do you have any final words for the international storytelling community? I particularly love long stories, epics, myths. I've been hoping that the storytelling international community could organize more myth and epic festivals so you can really dwell for a long time within a culture. One of the things I did a few years ago was to organize a Monkey King marathon in which 26 storytellers told the entire story of Journey to the West, and we told it over a three-day period. And this had an enormous effect on the storytelling community. Uh, we had storytellers from the metropolitan area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. People flew in from 
Canada, they came from California, from many different places. And as the story went on, as the story went on, the storytellers began to root for the protagonists, and they began to grasp the things that repeated, and they became a real storytelling community. So I think more marathons and more opportunities to dwell in story is something I would love to see happen in the storytelling community. There's so many ways that story can be of benefit. Um, We were talking about how we could organize stories in Haiti, I mean stories in trauma areas, so that both children can tell their stories and then they can tell stories of difficult experiences so that you can be so that emotion can be linked to mythic concepts and that you're not alone because this is part of the human condition to live in difficult, extremely challenging times. So I I wish there there was something called um, Storytellers Sans Frontières, you know, uh, like we have um, Doctors Without Borders. It would be great to have something called like Contours Sans Frontières or, or Storytellers Without Borders in which when there's trauma, storytellers can go into that place and tell stories because people need comfort. They need a sense of security and they need a sense of meaning. And that's one of the things that stories give us is a sense of meaning that we can connect to. Say again, what, what do you mean by dwell in stories? Well, a myth or an epic is an entire universe. So it in- encompasses the animals, the gods, the demons, the ghosts, the semi-gods, the people. And so you have to really get to know all aspects of it, the riches of it. And slowly you let go of your universe and then you enter that universe. So it's the cheapest travel there is, right? (laughs) I mean, what other travel is that cheap? (laughs) But you, you know, like that's why people go go away. They go away so that you can let go of this world you live in and and be refreshed with another vision. And in the same way, you can have a new vision when you enter into a deep myth. You're entering into a deep culture and a whole different other experience. Wow. I'm really struck in this conversation, as many of my listeners will already be struck, on how much your ideology is so similar to mine and how much your driving energy is so similar to mine and it and i've always believed that people are very impressionable when they're small (laughs) but i do i was going to say this to you after the interview but i want to say this publicly you are probably one of five storytellers and i didn't even know this till i sat in this room with you who you are my elder and you're one of five storytellers who if you admonish me or say i'm doing something i will listen (laughs) because you've traveled the road that I'm traveling and to me that's the road of living in this moment and this conversation about relationship with audience one of the one of the diamonds I want to take with us as we end the show here is that that moment is always there is always reachable in every telling and when you hold that container of the audience when the audience knows and travels with you in that story it's just there's so much more joy there in, in what I've seen. 
And I know for me, it's been a difficult road to include that. This is Eric Wolf in New York City, down in the West Village um, with Diane Wolkstein. Thank you, Diane, for coming on the show. And thank you, Eric. I, I truly appreciate your appreciation and your understanding. And I love that I had that opportunity to tell you stories at four years old. That was a lot of fun. This guest has written a post for the blog that can be read at www.artofstorytellingshow.com. This post includes a bio and a link to the guest's website, plus other additional information about our discussion. If you want to respond to this show, you can find this post and share your thoughts through the comment system in the blog comment box. If you wish to join a future show as an audience member, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash alerts and sign up to the email alert system. You can buy CDs of shows and preloaded iPods on the website. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This show is produced and hosted by me, Brother Wolf, and I am responsible for its content. It is released under a Creative Commons non-derivative and non-commercial license. That means you can copy it and you can give it away, but you can't splice it up or sell it. High-definition versions of this show are considered copyrighted, all rights reserved.